There are so many great tracks on this record, and the one that you just heard is my sleeper favorite. Nobody talks much about Letters from Earth, but I think all that really tells you is just how stacked this album is with great music. Letters from Earth follows TV crimes in the track listing, and thematically, it's something of a standalone. It has a bit of a dystopian feel to the premise, written from the point of view of a somewhat dissatisfied occupant of this our fair planet, sending letters off into space. I don't really know how that works, but I'm going to give Sabbath the benefit of the doubt because it's a great track. Nothing in the lyrics places the song definitively at any location in time. I guess it takes place at some point after the invention of the Postal Service, but that's all the more information we have. And as you can hear from the lyrics, Letters from Earth is decidedly not a love letter to Earth. The world, as Dio describes it, is a cold one, from which he sends his intergalactic pen pal only confusion and pain. But not in a good way? Regardless, it's a great song, and it deserves more love than I think it's ever afforded. Letters from Earth is followed by the only song on Dehumanizer that Ronnie James Dio didn't write the lyrics for. It's one of the two tracks that come from Geezer Butler's solo project. The other was Computer God, which was similar to the original in name only. We then move on to Time Machine, Sins of the Father, and Too Late, all of which we've already talked about. And you know how I hate to talk. The ninth track, titled simply I, you heard on the show break. It's another album favorite and thematically kind of an antidote to the subject of fundamentalist organized religion, specifically the organized part. I is a ferocious assertion of individualist philosophy. And knowing what we know about Stargazer being an elaborate analog subtweet of Richie Blackmore, I've always wondered if I wasn't aimed in the general direction of Tony and Geezer, but I don't have any evidence that that's the case. I think Dio loved being a member of Black Sabbath. That quote that I shared on side A of this episode about Dio wanting to make a blockbuster album and keep going for the rest of our lives makes that pretty clear, as does the way in which Dio ends his career, but we'll touch on that a bit later. For now, Let's briefly return to our trilogy on the troubles with the Trinity. Like we talked about before, After All is a meditation on eternity, wherein Dio takes a passing shot at those who would use the fleeting nature of the human condition to amass power and control for themselves. TV Crimes takes direct aim at those same manipulators of the masses, deliberately and surgically peeling away the layers of mendacity and coercion from the American televangelists to paint a heart-rending portrait of the cruelty that's really at the core of that very specific sheep-shepherd dynamic. And just to confuse my metaphors from earlier, if TV crimes is a surgical dissection of the abuses inherent to organized religion, the album Closer and the third chapter in the triad takes its now flayed, inert subject off the operating table, drags its dormant husk into the street, and delivers a coup de grace in the form of a sonic curb stomp. Too much again? No. Alright, sicko. It might be a bit of a surprise to learn that the final track from Dehumanizer is perhaps my favorite second only to Computer God, if so. But it was also something of a surprise to me, and not a realization that I came to quickly or immediately. Because when you think of Black Sabbath's great album closers, you typically think of soaring epic send-offs, like Under the Sun and A Spiral Architect, or more recently, Lonely is the Word, and Over and Over from the last two Dio records. But this is Dehumanizer. 
And the way this particular record ends is one of the reasons that it's my favorite of the Dio era. There is nothing soaring or epic about the resolution of Dehumanizer. It does have an especially beautiful chorus, but the song doesn't end with the chorus as one might assume. Third chorus, add some strings, maybe a choir, build to a final note or somber fade, and we're off to the witch. But again, this is Dehumanizer, and there's a reason it's the best. There actually is no third chorus on the final song on the album. Instead, Sabbath seems to deliberately subvert that expectation in favor of trying something new, something deeper and darker than what they have yet attempted, almost uncomfortably so. You might also say that the album ends as it began. I would. With a cold, hard stare into the ugliest corners of human existence, paying a third or fourth visit to the subject of organized religion, depending on whether or not you include sins of the father in that theme. But this time, Dio doesn't adopt the perspective of the sheep. He instead lends his voice to the character of the shepherd, a portrayal not dissimilar to that of the computer god. Again, sneering and fascistic, omnipotent and deeply cruel. And unlike TV crimes, there is no pretense of altruism to be deconstructed here. This is the sound of pure totalitarian id, unmasked and laid bare, which I have always thought echoes another well-known and horrifying vision of the future as it was imagined in 1949 by George Orwell. There will be no curiosity, no enjoyment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed, but always. Always, there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. That book took about a week of my life away from me. It's still the most upsetting thing I've ever read. But that quote from the end of 1984 is, I think, disturbingly similar to the final statement of this album from 1992, where Dio depicts our tele-evangelical cat as the personification of cruelty and the insatiable, unabashed lust for perfect and total control of another human being. There are only two songs on Dehumanizer in which Dio does a full heel turn, which is just wrestling terminology for becoming the bad guy. The first is the opening track, Computer God, a monologue that comes to us from a dread-filled dystopian world of the near future. The other is the final track, titled Buried Alive, which affords the listener no distance of time with which we might comfort ourselves. It does not happen soon. It is not approaching if we're not careful. It is here. It is happening now. And so the prophecy of the album has come full circle. Sabbath opened by showing us a nightmare world of possibility, and over the course of 52 minutes and 15 seconds has brought us to the threshold of the revelation that for so many of the unfortunate lonely souls among us, that future in potentia is the reality of now. The voice of authoritarian violence and coercive control exists in the present. Black Sabbath is telling us that the computer god might be, but buried alive is. And in the process, they have transformed all of us into potential victims and transformed themselves into the sound 
of Dehumanizer. This is Buried Alive. Love Sabbath will likely cite the final riff from Sabbath Bloody Sabbath as one of the top contenders for Iomi's heaviest. But the truth is, it's a long list with a metric butt truck of legit contenders, but I don't think he has ever sounded as menacing and just downright unholy as he does here. And I suspect Dio may have agreed because he wrote lyrics to match that sound perfectly. The way he opens up the track seems deliberately unsettling, with that discordant, kind of tremulous vocal quality from the very first line, once upon a nightmare. And then he starts to slowly, ominously build toward an audible and impending sense of violence with you got lost and found that you don't belong to anybody. You're all the same. Just another number, cross it out whenever you don't behave. But it's not just the tone of his words that's meant to unsettle. The phrasing is also intentionally disjointed. If you look at the phrase, you got lost and found that you don't belong to anybody, Dio breaks up the familiar construction of lost and found over two separate lines. So that the first line reads, you got lost. And the next line begins, and found that you don't belong. Which doesn't just sever the phrase, it also severs the meaning. He's not saying, you got lost and found. Now the lyric means, you got lost and then found out that you don't belong. The phrase lost and found is a problem followed by its solution, but Dio is changing it into a series of mounting problems. Jimmy Swaggart had a few of those. Yeah, I'm using it again. You are lost and then you found out that you don't belong robs the words of their implied and expected resolution. And if you think that's dirty, 
Let's look at what Dio does at the next line break, where he doesn't just separate a phrase from itself, he separates a word from itself, putting the first syllable of belong at the end of one line and the second syllable at the beginning of the next one. So it reads, you got lost and found that you don't be, long to anybody. Even though the word belong is preceded by the word don't, that's still not sad enough for Dio. So he splits it in two, reconfiguring the familiar sound of belong into be, as in exist, and long, as in longing, which is a description of why someone who lives a life of the lonely would join an organized religion of high control in the first place, because their existence is one of longing. It turns the word completely on its head so that it now means almost the exact opposite of what the listener expects it to mean. It's deliberately unsettling. You don't belong has been dissected and rearranged to suggest something more akin to you don't long to be, which is pretty fucking sinister, if you ask me. Somebody should really look into that Dio character, find out what he's got going on in his closet. And why is it, you may ask, that I happen to obsess over shit like this? Because that's what I was trained to do. What Dio is doing is what Shakespeare does. He bends words in strange ways and uses or abuses the meter of the poetry to give his actors clues to character psychology or create a mood for the listener, which is what I think Dio is doing here. And I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but it is my podcast, and what else were you going to do today? Pay bills? Fuck bills. Let's talk metal and Shakespeare. The ultimate bill. Okay, really quick example, and then I promise I'll move on. I just want you to listen carefully to this next line, and you may have heard it before. To be or not to be, that is the question. Hamlet, right? To live or to die, that's what it all boils down to. Simple enough. Except that Shakespeare's poetry is written in what we call iambic pentameter. Stay on target in which each line of the verse contains 10 syllables. But the line I just read to you, Shakespeare's most famous, actually has 11. It's not a regular line of verse. If it were regular, the line would sound like this. To be or not to be, that is the quest. Now that's a very different meaning than the way that it's written. Because Hamlet is pulling an after all in that particular speech. It's about what comes after death and how that colors our actions in life. Hamlet doesn't say that is the quest because that speech comes in act three. And a quest is not how he sees life and death in this moment. In this moment, life and death is still a question. By the time he gets to the speech that I quoted you from act five on side A of this episode, when Hamlet says of life and death simply, it will come and the readiness is all, Life and death has become Hamlet's quest, but back in Act 3, it's still a question. And that's why Shakespeare wrote his most famous line with an extra syllable at the end. Have I lost you yet? Okay, I'll keep trying. But for now, back to evil shit. One of the reasons it took me so long to stop worrying and love Buried Alive is because I didn't at first recognize the way that it built as it went along. If you listen to the first and final verses in the course of the song, there is no immediate or overt difference. We don't go up or down an octave, the tempo doesn't change, it just sounds like Sabbath is coming back to the verse to close out the song. 
But Buried Alive is kind of like that 19th century science experiment where some real assholes notice that if you put a frog in boiling water, it immediately jumps out. But if you put a frog in cold water and slowly increase the temperature, the frog is, well, boiled alive. And returning to what I'm certain sounds like an uncomfortably specific knowledge of how cults work, slowly boiling a frog alive is a perfect metaphor for coercive tactics among high control groups like cults or CrossFit. Jim Jones didn't kick off the first meeting of the People's Temple with, show of hands, who wants to do a year of slave labor in South America and then chase the whole thing with some cyanide shots? Anybody? Terry, you look tempted. All right, let me know by EOD Friday. Jim Jones was a master manipulator, gradually and methodically testing the limits of his followers and pushing their comfort levels to a place where once isolated and firmly under his control, he could actually convince them that mass suicide was their best and only option. Dio does something similar on Buried Alive. I mean, Jim Jones murdered 900 people just to see if he could, and Dio learned to play the trumpet as a kid, so it's not exactly apples to apples, but... Whether consciously or not, Dio and Sabbath are slowly increasing the tension and the temperature of the song as we listen, so that if you're not paying really close attention, you almost don't realize that the end of the album is just an abomination of sound. The relentless, pummeling loop of Iommi's riff as Ronnie James Dio is almost imperceptibly sliding into the sound of total mania with lyrics that just keep pushing us further and further down a very dark passage. In the first verse, the narrator reduces his followers to a number, like 18664. Damn it, I'm getting further away now. Then threatens to cross that number out whenever you don't behave. And in the next verse, we've gone from followers who don't behave to followers who are possessed by the devil, which could be considered an escalation in some circles. And it culminates with our man of faith threatening his flock. It might be contagious. It might change the plan. Get back in your tiny boxes. Even if you can't, we say you can. What we don't know at this point as the listener is that those tiny boxes are all made of pine, which we will soon learn from the first chorus. When you thought you were free, you didn't need a reason, no reason to survive. As the big door closes, and you're waiting for the nail, somebody tell the world you're buried alive. So we've quietly gone from crossing out your number to accusing you of possession, to putting you all in boxes, and then to burying those boxes with you inside of them. I still don't see hands. Terry, you with me yet? Yes? No? Terry? Anybody know where Terry is? At the tail end of that first chorus, though, we get some more clues as to the methodology of our dear leader when Dio sings, Join the congregation. Everybody's got to get in line, and we never justify. The choir sings a never-ending lie. There's a quote that I always attribute to Frederick Douglass, but like that Groucho line about comedy, I can never find it. Maybe I should start using Google instead of just yelling my questions at the computer screen, but I'm <laughs> yelling is fun. Why would I deny that to myself? The quote goes something like this, Slavery isn't the true institution of slavery until it's self-perpetuating. Basically, you can't really subject anybody to anything until you can find a way to make them subject themselves. It's like in 1984 when they don't put a bullet in the back of your head until they know you love Big Brother. Is anybody else really depressed yet? Okay, well, try, try again. 
But that's where the line about the choir comes in. If you're running a cult, which I assume you are, it's not enough for you to just tell a lie. You have to tell that lie so often and so loudly that the people you are lying to start to tell it to themselves. That's cult 101, baby. But I encourage you to do your own research on the topic by visiting my website, www.stopthestealav4apod.com. By the time we come back to that line, congregation has become celebration. Because we can't just get you to put yourself in tiny coffins. You have to be happy about it. You can't just accept Big Brother. You have to love Big Brother. Then you have my permission to die. You know how to get it in there, right? The second verse begins, <sighs> same as the first, but then three lines in, running from temptation becomes running from tomorrow. And two lines later, the verse is completely different. I don't really have any illuminating thoughts about it. It's just a brilliant bit of poetry and I think very much worth highlighting. It begins with the familiar unfamiliarity of you got lost and found, but continues that another day has turned to ashes, taken by the wind, frozen seeds of sorrow, never to begin. Listen, I know, I beat this horse like it's the Washington Generals, but when people refer to something as Shakespearean, they typically mean melodramatic because they haven't ever seen a good production. Sturgeon's Law applies to Shakespeare the way it applies to everything else in the world. 90% of it is crap. As someone who did a lot of crap Shakespeare, and a little bit of truly sublime, transformative, like life-changing Shakespeare, I can confidently tell you that if the lyrics that I just read to you aren't Shakespearean, nothing is. Those lines feel like they could be lifted directly out of King Lear or Macbeth, The Winter's Tale, or any number of his plays. Ronnie James Dio was a truly, truly brilliant writer. I just keep finding myself arriving at that conclusion throughout this series. But I digress. Finally, as Buried Alive hurdles toward the conclusion of Dehumanizer, Ronnie James Dio, the vocalist, goes absolutely off, wailing over that pummeling drone from Iomi as he starts to let go of the melody and cadence that he has built throughout the song, pushing his voice into a full-out scream almost beyond the boundaries of his vast vocal talents sounding increasingly and dangerously unhinged. I have never heard Dio make this sound before or since, but rather than continue to describe it, I want you to experience it for yourself. I will just quickly point your attention to the line, join the celebration, one final time as Dio foregoes every word in the line except celebration which is delivered in what can only be described as an ungodly keen. And of course, the final words of Dehumanizer, you're buried alive. No further comments, Your Honor. The prosecution rests. And here it is. The conclusion to the Dehumanizer album and the final verse of Black Sabbath's Buried Alive. Everybody!
every time I hear him do what he does with the word celebration at the end of that song, it's like the first time. It's just tortured, demonic glee. Pure horror. And it makes me happy. Good luck with that one, Mr. Freud. Okay, if you're looking at the runtime of this episode and doing the math on the number of Dio records that remain, don't. As an actor who performed a lot of his own work, if I get to the third to last joke and it absolutely kills, that's where the scene ends. Because what I learned is that the material I thought was third to last was actually the best material. And I don't think there is better material on which to end than Dehumanizer. So I'm going to take one final break because it'll give me the chance to play a little more music and then we can all come back together and shut this bitch down. If you need to take a minute, that's okay because I need to take a minute. And when we come back, it's time to close the big door and wait for the nail. I still got a few thoughts kicking around in the old can and not one of them is about Shakespeare. I promise. Eh, we'll see. When we come back. Once again, Ronnie James Dio returns Sabbath to the UK and US album charts at number 28 and 44, respectively. TV Crimes lands at number 33 on the UK singles, and that's when things fall apart again. As Iomi put it in 1999, it was good to try that with Ronnie, but we lost millions on it. Oh no, if only you had millions to spend on one of your greatest artistic achievements, so what you do? Like a bunch of millions. But whatever. Please continue. Because of the time we took to record it, we fly backwards and forwards to the States with everything. A lot of messing about, and a lot of money wasted. Originally, Cozy Powell was involved. And then he wasn't. What the fuck does that have to do with anything, Tony? Are you just saying sentences? Also, you probably could have saved a few quid if you didn't insist on flying backwards. That's not how planes are designed to work. I'm sorry, you've got a collaboration with Ice-T to get to. Don't let me keep you. I think Dehumanizer suffered from one very serious factor that took me 20 minutes to explain on the A side of this episode, and that's timing. Well, much faster this time. 
As they were in 1980, all the currents in popular music were running against Black Sabbath, only more like tenfold because of the emergence of grunge. Had the album, or some version of it, come out in 1983 after Mob Rules, I think Ronnie James Dio would have the blockbuster that he had hoped for, but it just wasn't meant to be. Dio leaves Sabbath because he doesn't want to open for an Aussie Sabbath reunion, and he shouldn't fucking have to. I didn't get into the Aussie Dio thing because it's kind of played out, and I don't really care. They're all my children. So Iommi brings Tony Martin back, and everyone stops giving a shit about Sabbath again until 2013, when I guess Tony Martin just became a way better frontman? I don't know. Dio makes five more solo records, the first of which, Strange Highways, continues in the vein of Dehumanizer as a really dark, heavy record and is probably the last really great Dio album. Jesus, Mary, and the Holy Ghost is the album opener that I just played into the show break. Next is Angry Machines, which is not great, but at least Dehumanizer doesn't have the worst cover art anymore. Magica is kind of interesting because it's a concept record with some solid tunes like Turn to Stone. Dio even throws in a little wink to that celebration moment from Buried Alive on that track. Makes me happy. And then Killing the Dragon and Master of the Moon are albums by the band Dio. But in 2009, there was, to return to a phrase, a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Ronnie James Dio's final album was called The Devil You Know, where he reunited with Tony... Geezer, and Vinny under the name Heaven and Hell, and maybe that's what they always should have been. It doesn't really matter, and I don't have an opinion on it, because what does matter is that Dio got to make music one last time with the three other guys that I think he always wanted to make music with the most. There's some great stuff on The Devil You Know, like Bible Black and Follow the Tears, but I have to admit that I find it hard to listen to that album. You can just hear it in Dio's voice. Something has changed. But the task that I set out before us at the top of the episode was to embrace the inevitability of change, and so we shall. In winter of 2009, Dio started suffering from stomach pains and shortly thereafter was diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer. On May 4th of 2010, Heaven and Hell canceled their summer tour, and Dio released a statement disclosing his diagnosis. It read as follows. With your continued love and support, we will carry on and thrive. There will be tours, more music, more life, and much more magic. Twelve days later, on May 16th, Wendy Dio announced that Ronnie had died, saying, Today, my heart is broken. Please know that he loved you, and his music will live on forever. Tony Iommi echoed that phrase in his own public announcement, saying, His music will live on Forever, the man with the magic voice is a star amongst stars. I'll miss you so much, my dear friend. Sorry, I just couldn't do the voice on that one. <clears throat> I know that these releases are curated for the public, but I have to say I find it so heartening that Dio's final word to his fans would be the same that he used to sign thousands of autographs that he gave in his four decades of public life. Magic. <laughs> A special providence indeed. I recently read a wonderful article written about Dio posthumously in Classic Rock by a guy named Paul Elliott. He told a story about his final interview with Dio, and this isn't really related to anything, but I want to read a bit of it for you because it's just awesome. He wrote, I asked Ronnie about a phrase he had used many times that had become akin to a trademark, look out. 
And this, Elliot said, was Dio's response. He smiled. It's funny. Whenever I play in Phoenix, this one guy is always there. And every time I'm going to sing it, he holds up a sign that says, Look out. I take it as a compliment. You know, I thought this series was about Ronnie James Dio, but now I'm thinking it was all kind of a tribute to that one guy in Phoenix. Kudos, anonymous guy. Kudos. Although I haven't been doing this podcast for that long, I will say that something about this series feels very different. I've gotten so many messages on Twitter, which is still my primary platform for communication on the pod, about just how much Ronnie James Dio meant and means to people. My old Twitter pal Jonas and new Twitter pal White Crone, who told me a really lovely story about how Dio was her key to the open door of grief. That his passing allowed her to access an experience of loss that she hadn't been able to process before. Now, obviously, I've been talking shit with uh, Farragal or Fergal or Fergie Ferg or even just Fred Anderson. Apparently, it doesn't matter. But, you know, that one guy from Feckin' Metal podcast, Doomy and Rockarola from the Judas Priest cast, Mark Twain, my friend Melissa from Metal Chat Pod, Kevin Brown from Seaside, Tom Petty Project, and I think like eight other podcasts. Obviously, Mob Raw Rules, my boy Ralph Cavetto. Cavetto or Savetto? You know, a piche, a piece. Ruddy Rutherford from Fitlight Photography, Gav of Pen with Gav fame, and Patrick McGinley, who are two of my favorite people on Twitter. Just great fucking dudes. Mr. Jim Asterisk Curtis Sparkles, Chris Naren from Top 1000 Radio, who works way too hard for free but has a killer podcast as a result, and also probably a ton of other people that I'm sorry if I didn't mention. But very early on in the series, I got a message from my old pal Gregadef from So Far, So Pod, So What. Wait, you still in there, Greg? Thresh. 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 Uh, he's busy. I'll just let him know I mentioned him later if he ever finds his way out of that utility closet. So Greg does not fancy himself a writer or poet necessarily. He's just a metalhead and a musician who has forgotten more about the subject than I could ever hope to know. But I would like to read you something he wrote because I think it's poignant and insightful and just a touch mystical. However Greg conceives of himself, I think you'll hear that despite that opinion, he really is something of a poet. He wrote this about heaven and hell, but I think it applies to Dio's body of work across the board. Here it is. The song is an absolute monolith a lyrical tribute to the evergreen power, hope, and occasional destruction of ambition. Pretty damn good start, Greg. He continued, It's universal. It's a message for anyone and everyone. They are words that he wrote, but we already kind of knew them. The reason that the first time we hear them feels like getting hit by a truck is because it's the first that we are aware that we've carried them since birth. Whoa, check out the big brain on Greg. That's just fucking awesome. But something else this fucking apparent latter-day Aristotle said got me thinking somewhere near the beginning of the series when I was just trying to figure out how to play songs about going steady with your best girl on a metal podcast. He wrote this. There was so much depth in his discography and personal character that I feel the appreciation has not only not faded, but his shadow only looms larger with time. Dude was three foot four, but his legacy is a lot taller. So, so a sometime poet, sometime rose comic, 
lot of dimension to old Greg's over easy. But he's right. Not about the three foot four thing. Maybe in heels, but that's neither here nor anywhere. When Dio died in 2010, I had largely forgotten about the impact of his work on the music and musicians who make this sound that we all love. And this is what I was referencing earlier on the A side of this episode about there being new chapters yet to come. After his death, I started to go back and really dig into his catalog. Not just the Sabbath stuff and his solo work, but those three albums with Elf and the three with Rainbow as well. Something about Ronnie James Dio is, for lack of a less cheesy term, truly magical. Like an open door that we've passed before, but we never had the key. His death afforded us a chance to step back through that door and see that the space in which Dio's discography exists is an infinite one. There is, as Shakespeare said, no bottom. And for metal culture, as we continue to explore the corners of that cornerless room, we will, I think, continue to discover that this man's work is always more tomorrow than what we thought it was yesterday. To misquote the bard one final time, his bounty is as boundless as the sea, his works as deep. The more he has, the more he gives to us, for both are infinite. So in a way, I feel like on May 30th of 2010, we laid the body of a man to rest in the Hollywood Hills. But we got the wrong guy. <laughs> the man we lost was Ronnie James Padavona. But as Ronnie's friend Tony and his wife Wendy suggest, Dio lives on. And he told us that all the way back in 1983 when he said, the vision never dies. And that is where I will pass my tiny torch onto all of you at the conclusion of my time telling the continuing story of Ronnie James Dio. Thank you all for listening, you beautiful mother punchers. I may take a little mid-season break here to collect my thoughts on where we go now, but I have a lot of cool series ideas in the works, a few possible collaborations, and some weird side quests I hope you'll join me for. Until then, feel free to talk to strangers, but only about Ronnie James Dio. And don't bother listening to fools. Ronnie James Dio was and continues to be the fucking best. Not just because of his immense body of work, but also as a tiny person with a titanic heart, ever overlooked and underestimated, perpetually uncool, but forever undeniable, Dio is us. He is the hopes and aspirations of all metalheads for all time. The guy that no one takes seriously until he steps onto the stage and shows us a world we would have never known existed had it not been for the generosity and vision that he possessed to share it. And with that, dear listeners, I bid you magic. Magic.